0: Psalm chapter 53 uh, is where we're going to be this evening. So let's read that and then we will um, begin. Psalm 53 verse 1 says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you, You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we love you and we thank you for the time that you give us to come and to look at your word. Uh, Father, I pray that as we approach your word this evening, Lord, that you would... uh, just can communicate great things to us, Lord, that as we can consider our state apart from you, God, that you would just, in the midst of realizing who we are, would you just reveal how, how magnificent your grace and love and compassion is to us, a fallen people. And Father, we're so grateful that you take us as vessels of mercy, Lord, that you do a great work in our hearts and you make us, um, you set us aside for, uh, for your glory. And so, Father, we ask you uh, this evening, would you use this time to, to do a great work in us, to conform us to the image of Christ and to um, just uh, mold our thinking to what you truly think. And, and Lord, we just ask you this in the name of Christ, and it is through his blood and in his name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to go ahead and give you a forewarning. Uh, psalm 53 is not an easy psalm. It, it communicates some difficult things. Um, it is almost perfectly parallel to Psalm 14. So, many, many weeks ago, when you were looking at Psalm 14, we're probably going to talk about some similar things. But ultimately, what Psalm 53 is about is who humans are apart from what Christ has accomplished. And it's really important that we understand this. And I really think that we, as people, do not, do not really pause to consider who we actually are apart from Christ. And let me explain why this is important, Um, really, especially in light of Easter. Um, So as we just spent all of our uh, last week preparing for Easter services, thinking about Christ's resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection, it's a wonderful time for us to consider how Christ has indeed rescued and redeemed his people. I mean, we should all walk away from Easter encouraged, excited. Um, It's a time where not only the church, but really the world has this unique opportunity I almost like to think of it as a pause. People begin to consider things that they don't normally consider. It's a good time to go around asking questions like, do you, do you ever think about spiritual things? Um, and, and more often than not, around the time of Easter, people really do begin to consider those things a little bit more than other times. And so what I would like to do this evening is as we walk through Psalm 53, think about them in light of Easter. Because when we look at Easter, we consider the cross. Far too often we just pay attention to what we see Christ accomplish there, and we should. But there's something unique and beautiful when we consider who he did this for. Um, To to maybe put it into a a more clear illustration is, um, when I consider the fact that, that my bride married me, Um, I know myself really well. I'm really not that great of a guy. I really don't think that I'm I'm worthy of my bride. Thankfully, she did uh, say yes to me. But there was a moment um, when when I was about to propose that I realized she actually could say no to me. And like sheer panic came over me because I didn't really realize that until right then in that moment. Because I knew myself, and I realized that even though um, I, I've done some good things, I've tried to, to draw her to me, that I really am not the perfect individual. That I really have flaws, and, and I've got some major issues, and she knew those. And in light of all those things, she still chose me. Does that make sense? And so when we consider the cross, it's good to consider who we are, because ultimately what the cross is, is this grand proposal that Jesus makes to man to say, Come and be my bride. And so for us this evening, as we pause to consider who we are, who He made this grand proposal to, I am convinced understanding who we are apart from Christ gives us an even deeper appreciation and understanding of the grace and love and affection that He has for us and how it is indeed unmerited favor. And so when we consider the word grace... We really, I think we forget that what that actually means. When we receive grace from God, it is a recognition and acceptance of the fact that we are completely and totally unworthy of anything that Christ has to offer us. And so this evening, as we look at Psalm 53, my prayer is that as we walk away, we walk away with a deeper appreciation and affection for the grace that God has indeed lavished on us in light of who we actually are apart from Him. So, let's dive in. Uh, Psalm 53, starting in verse 1, really looking at the title here, you see this. To the choir master, according uh, to Mahalith, a mescal of David. Now let me explain what this is real quickly. So a mescal is essentially a contemplative poem. The purpose of this is for that Israel, as they read it, would pause and consider. They would contemplate over these things. Now, I know that when we come to the Psalms, we, like the Psalms are the place to go to kind of get that emotional response when we come to the Scriptures because they're beautiful, right? They're well-written poems. They really can connect to our souls. It's almost like, um, like it's just in, in the same way that lyrics to this day still connect to us in a unique way. But what I'd like for us to do is really take this as what the writer of the Psalm intended it to be. I mean, think about it for just a moment. David had an intention when he wrote this Psalm. He really did have a point. It wasn't just to pin something for his own edification, but the Holy Spirit inspired him to do this so that the people of Israel would pause and consider the things that David wrote. And so we, some thousands years later, as we come to this, let's just honor what David intended to do. We're going to come to this contemplating, thinking through what this means for us and ultimately what this means for redemption, as we'll see later on. So let me give you three things that we are to contemplate during this psalm. First, we are to contemplate our sinful nature, our sinful state, this idea of who we are apart from Christ. We're going to walk through each of these, but the first is this idea that we actually are a sinful people. Now, in the nice moral South, I was raised to be what I like to call a good old boy. Um, I was raised to be a a nice moral individual. I had great parents who did a very good job training me and really trying to build me into a gentleman and things like that. I still fail and falter, but, but they worked very hard to do that. But my morality is not what makes me good or evil. What makes me good or evil is ultimately what I do for the glory of God. Good, in our terms, is not this idea of us being moral. Good is what God says it is. So we're going to look at that in a minute. But secondly, we are to contemplate God's wrath. We are to contemplate God's wrath. Um, We live in a world where we have this God who uh, is often preached that does not have wrath. Ultimately, I think we rob Him of His justice and His holiness. Um, And I just refuse to do that. As we come to the God of the Scriptures, we're going to say about God what the Scriptures say about Him. And it does not shy away from the fact that we have a just holy and wrathful God. So we're going to contemplate God's wrath. And lastly, we're going to contemplate man's only hope. Pay very close attention to the word only hope. So as we look at this, we're just going to go verse by verse at first. So look at verse 1. It says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt doing abominable iniquities. There is none who does good. Now, when I look at this first verse, there is this idea of atheism. There is no God. Now, I'm going to be the first to mention, when I, when I looked at this passage, my immediate thought was we're going to have to talk about atheism just real quickly. Um, but as I studied this passage, what I really came to the conclusion of, yes, the atheist says in his heart there is no God, but how frequently do we by our actions communicate that we truly believe that there is no God? or at bare minimum, that we, uh, we believe that the God of the Bible is not one that, we actually, that really does have authority to see us in our secret place, to see us in the midst of all of our sin. Is He really the omniscient God? Is He really going to hold us accountable? And so I just want to walk through this real quickly. I'm convinced that this statement is not a statement of atheism, but of idolatry. Um, this idea that there is no God is not a statement of atheism, but of idolatry. It, it indicates there is something wrong within the human mind and heart. And so let's look at this real quickly. The first one I do want to take is this idea of the atheist, the one that would actually proclaim there absolutely is no God. They're making an argument, whether it be from science or experience or what have you, that there really is no higher being, no deity at all. And there are many of these, and they've multiplied in our day. Um, Or so it seems. And ultimately, what I would like to point out to you is I'm convinced that that there is really no such thing as an atheist altogether. Every time I consider the idea of atheism, it's somewhat of a, of a laugh because they say that there is no God, but ultimately what atheism is is a proclamation that I myself am God. Um, there is no such thing as true atheism. It is an idolatry. It is this idea that I myself am God. And let me, let me make clear to you probably why this is so appealing to the sinful heart, why it's appealing to the atheist, the one who rejects God altogether, and why it's even something that comes about in the Christian heart. Because the idea that there is a God that we must be accountable to is something that causes us to tremble. I May mean, you ever stop to consider that um, the atheist, in the midst of his argumentation against the, a, a deity, really what he's arguing against is one that he has to give an account to? He is saying, I am my own authority. And friends, we live in a world that that's the proclamation across each and every man. This idea of relativism that has come about in the last couple probably decades, that, that my truth is maybe not your truth, but it's, but it's mine. I have the right to have it. This idea flows from the idea that there is no truth, and it flows from the idea ultimately that there is no God. Relativism cannot exist in a world where there is a deity, a deity to set truth. And so when um, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, ultimately what he's saying is, despite reality, despite the fact that I've made myself to be God, I'm arguing not that there is not one, I'm arguing that there is not one to whom I must give an account. And so the atheist is an interesting one, but I'm not convinced that that is the one to be most fearful over. Secondly, there is the one who is just a clear unbeliever. The scriptures would refer to them as a pagan or even a heathen. The idea that um, they say there is no God because their argument is my life is ultimately about my pleasure and about the things that I enjoy. Um, I, I always consider these to be what I would call a nihilist. The idea that really nothing matters. I have no one to give an account to. The only theme of my life is what I can do right here and right now. And friends, we live in a world, and frankly, we live in a society... That says this is really all that matters is your individual happiness. Really, there's no cult, there's no, um, it doesn't matter how it affects the individuals around you. And so the reason they proclaim there is no God is because they refuse to say that there is one who would limit them in their pursuit of pleasure. But the one that is most fearful, I am convinced, is the, un, the, the Christian who would argue there is no God. Now, we don't argue it day in and day out, but we argue it in our secret places. It's the secret sins that we say to God, there is no God. And and this is really the one I want to focus on because I'm convinced that probably the people we have here, there are probably more of those who claim to be Christians and really do walk with Jesus. But at the exact same time, there are moments in our lives where we say there is no God. There's no God who is watching me, who genuinely knows my innermost thoughts, who knows no matter where I am, he, he, he knows the motives, he knows truly the depths of my wickedness. And that's the God that we say, this God can't be real. And if you would like to see a clear example of that proclamation, it is when we very willingly sin and rebel against that God that there is something in our hearts that do indeed cry out, there is no God. And I want you to notice the language here. It says, the fool says in his heart, never would we proclaim this. Never would we come to church on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or any other time we're around our Christian friends or really anybody for that matter and really be foolish enough to proclaim there absolutely is no God. But our actions, our actions betray us. Have you ever thought about the, the, the times that you've sat in front of your unbelieving friends? And in the midst of that, you are partaking in the exact same things that they are doing, things that are completely and totally contrary to God's will for your life. And in that, you are making a proclamation to them, whether you verbalize it or not, that there really is no God that has authority over me or at bare minimum one that has my heart. You see, the idea here is one that is painful for me to consider because I remember growing up and even now that there are moments where sin takes captive me. It grabs my heart and it tempts me and brings me along. And in that moment, I have to make a conscious decision whether I'll be faithful to serve the God who has adopted me, who has brought me into his family, or whether I will reject him in that moment and sin and rebel. Because that's ultimately the decision that we make time and time again. And I want you to notice the language here. This fool that says in his heart, the fool is the one who says, I understand these things, I've grasped them, but at the exact same time, I am rebelling against them. He is fully aware of them. And friends, is fully aware of, of the truths of God's word as we are. How quickly we become fools when we shove them aside or we suppress them by our wickedness and choose sin over the one who has rescued us. You see, when I look at this text, the fool says in his heart, the very first individual I think of is myself. I mean, I, you know, I think of really not just me, but anyone who has devoted their time and energy to studying the Scriptures. I mean, I know the law of God. I understand the grace that He's bestowed on me. And, and many, and you do as well. But how quickly are we to become fools and exchange the glories that God has offered us to serve Him faithfully, to, for Him to bless that obedience, and for us to even have reward in eternity for being obedient to Him. And we exchange that for meager things here that will burn. To me, that's the fool. And it's easy to look look in the mirror and see that fool day in and day out. And to me, as we approach this scripture, what we have to be careful of is looking at other individuals and saying, how foolish are they? You see, it's easy when we come to texts that are difficult like this. It's easy to come to texts that really do, uh, really bring the hammer on us and begin to look at our neighbors as opposed to stop and examining ourselves. Paul constantly encouraged... His, the churches that he planted and the ones that he wrote letters to, to examine themselves. 1 Corinthians in particular, I think 2 Corinthians, he, Paul writes, examine yourself to see whether or not you have believed in vain. And so for us, as we consider this, my prayer is that we would not begin to look next door or not look to our neighbors, but first examine our own hearts and consider how in my life am I saying, am, am, I, am I communicating Christ, but by my actions arguing that there actually is no God altogether. And so the very first thing that we see is this idea of the fool that suppresses the truth. Now let's look at this idea that the children of man are corrupted altogether. Now this is really where I want to get into the idea that the human heart due to the fall is not what it once was and it is in desperate need of something to happen in it for anything to change. So let's look. So verse 1 says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, notice that language, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Now look at this, verse 2 is really really interesting. God looks down from heaven on the children of man. It's almost like this idea that God is actively watching, looking for one who will live righteously before him. But listen to what he finds. To see if there are any who understands, who seek after God, they have all fallen away. All. All. And he says this, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So a couple of things I want to lay out here is very first, no no one is exempt. Not a single soul is exempt from this. And I want you to understand, like, and the reason this is so important to communicate here, and when I mean here, I mean the South, where we have this idea of a cultural Christianity in the exact same time we have churches on every corner. The, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, why I'm planting in Olive Branch, Mississippi. And the reason that that we, we feel the need to plant there is because I'm convinced that there are thousands of people who truly believe that their good deeds will get them in. And a true gospel message needs to go out that says, not a single soul will enter the gates of heaven by their good works because not a single soul has done a one. And it's a painful thing to consider from time to time because I remember growing up and I, even the other day I was talking to my father and he was talking, we were talking about what a good man looks like. And, and, I, and I laughed at him a little bit and I said, you know, I think there's only been one. Um, We look to Christ, that's where we see a good man live a faithful and true life and of an obedience to the Father. And so when we look at what a good man looks like, we have one place to fix our eyes, and that's on Christ. But sweet friends, if we really understand who we are apart from Christ, and, and really all you have to do to examine an illustration of this is really consider your own heart and my own heart. Because no one has a front row seat to the true wickedness of the human heart as us but it takes a painful thing to do from time to time when we stop and consider who we truly are. We stop and consider the real motives of our heart, even in our good deeds. When we consider the motives of our heart in our best deeds or even in our most wicked deeds, because so so rarely do we really have a motive that says, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ. But far more frequently we think about our own glory, our own renown, our own fame. And so when God looks out over all the earth and He's looking for anyone who understands or acts wisely, He finds not a one. Not a one. And what's interesting is there are people that we give free passes to because we think they're good old boys. Genuinely, how many people have you walked by and by their morality said, they're probably believers? And yes, we should see people's fruit. But how many times have we passed up good gospel opportunities because we live in the South and we're convinced they've heard the gospel and they act wisely, and so we just take a back row. We sidestep it. But friends, despite how morality looks, there is no free pass with a holy God justice must be done, and as he looks out over all the earth and finds not a single soul who has done a good deed that that God might repay him, he will scream, justice must be served. And so, as we consider this, the very first thing we must consider is not a single individual is exempt, and that means our closest friends, that means our children, that means our parents, that means our brothers and sisters regardless whether they grew up in the exact same situation you did, we must communicate to them a gospel message that says, yes, indeed, Christ has paid our debt in full, but he will change your life to to make you look more like him day in and day out. And so my prayer is that as we consider this, that we would be quick to pay attention not only to our own hearts, but also to those around us and realize that there is not a single soul who will get into heaven by his own merits, for he has none. And all the ones that he might bring... I had a student ask me one time, when I get to heaven, or when I get to the gates, what will I say to God that he might let me in? Brilliant question from a 14-year-old girl. And she, said, and she began to talk about her deeds. And I began to consider as she was racking them up, because a 14-year-old, I mean, I was thinking, my goodness, all the things you've done for the father... And as she began to compile those things, the verse came to mind, your righteous deeds are as filthy rags, and that's what you desire to get into heaven with. And it matters not if you think that your good deeds have outweighed your bad. For a just and holy God, one is all that is necessary to condemn, and they cannot be outweighed by your good deeds, because he is indeed a just and holy God. Sin must be punished. And I looked at her and I said, the only thing that can get you into heaven is you stand before that that terrible but yet glorious throne is Christ in him crucified that is our one proclamation our only proclamation and friends whether no matter how much you care about an individual no matter how much you see their morality when they stand before that throne if they do not yell Christ in him crucified and find their comfort and rest there then he will say out with you you evil doer i never knew you not one is exempt Now, let's look at some of the effects of the fall and this idea of the children of man, who we are. So, we are children of iniquity, children of iniquity. You see in verse 1, they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. I mean, this language really comes through a couple of times, but to really just give it some clarity to the idea of iniquity, iniquity is taking something good and twisting it, corrupting it. Um, whenever you look at, for instance, the fall, when you, look at, um, when you look at Satan began to tempt Adam and Eve, he begins to corrupt some things that God has said. That's his, that's his primary goal, and really, he's the father of it. That's what he likes to do. That's how he likes to manipulate mankind, and that frankly, that's how he's almost built something in us as we have fallen and rebelled against God. Iniquity has become really our primary motive or primary means of sinning. Yes, to sin is to miss the mark and I'm convinced that out of the three we have sin missing the mark ultimately just failing to meet God's righteous requirements. You have iniquity, this idea of twisting and and making something good, wicked and then lastly you have this idea of transgression. So transgression is Um, Looking at perhaps one of the Ten Commandments where it says, Thou shalt not murder. And then you see Jesus even deep in that uh, in the New Testament when he said if you've you've hated someone, you've murdered them. The idea of transgression is seeing that line clearly and crossing it. Just looking at it and saying, I'm going to go right through that. If you'd like to see that demonstrated, tell a child not to push a button. Um, And you will quickly see that child immediately go and push that button. Uh, That's the idea of transgression but, but for us, I'm convinced that the humans, more than anything else, have taken a great likening and also have mastered the idea of iniquity. We are children of iniquity. iniquity. We take the good gifts that God has given us and we corrupt them. Don't we? And we take the most blessed things and we make them the most wicked. Matthew Henry, um, in his commentary on this psalm, uh, said, "...the most blessed things corrupted become the worst." The most blessed things corrupted become the worst. And it's such a profound statement that we, as children of iniquity, take the most blessed things that God gives us. I mean, think of food, for instance. Let's just take that. Food is a blessing. Amen? Amen. And, friends, we have made it some of the most wicked things around. And perhaps you're thinking, food, really? That's wicked? But you look at the sin of gluttony, and that's the one Baptists don't like to talk about, um, but the idea of gluttony where we will gorge ourselves on it. And not only that, we bow our faces before food. So often, the, the individual lives to eat as opposed to eat to live. And you look at that, or perhaps drink, for instance. Drink corrupted is the most wicked thing. You see such sin come from it. Such sin. And I won't even get into what we see of promiscuity, that God's given us a great gift in the marriage relationship and misused. I mean, look at how it has corrupted our world as we have made a God out of uh, out of physical intimacy that's meant only for the marriage relationship, see how it corrupts. You see, one of the, some of the best things that God has given us is gifts. We have corrupted, we have made wicked, and all of this flows from the fall. And this is really where I want to pay attention here, because something happened in Genesis chapter 3 that still has effect in our hearts, and far more than that, it seems to even be growing worse and worse and worse. And we like to think about it that way, but in, in, in reality... The human heart is so wicked, apart from God doing a great work in it, it screams day in and day out, my glory, not yours. And it takes the good gifts that God has given and says, away with your prescribed method. I refuse to bow to them and I will do them as I see fit. And that's why the human heart cries, there is no God, because we refuse to bow to His authority. We refuse to bow to his authority. And so as we look at this text and we have we this idea of not a single one of us is exempt from this idea of iniquity. And then uh, the next thing I want to point is we do evil continually. Continually. That with every breath I breathe before I came to faith in Christ, and same for you and every individual who does not know Jesus, fails to completely obey the commands of Christ. And I understand this seems like a very hard teaching. We'll get to good news in a minute. But the idea is see our state. See our state. Somebody told me one time grace is um, grace is the idea not of someone stopping because they didn't owe you something. And when you're broken down on the side of the road, grace is when you drive by them firing a weapon trying to kill them and then you break down and the same people you fired a weapon at come and fix your fix your car just five minutes later. That's the idea of grace. And so when we look at this passage and we consider that we are completely and totally corrupted children of iniquity and imagine this idea that we who are called to be the image bearers of God have corrupted it to such an extent that it is almost unrecognizable yet we still walk around with it. The holy, just, perfect God looks at His image every day corrupted with sin. How easy would it be to just say, kill them all. And here we are. I like to argue that the good news of Genesis chapter 3 is that there's a chapter 4. Because in his infinite holiness, justice, and wrath, there should never have been a chapter 4. Wipe them out. And yet, here we are. Lastly, I'd like to point out the positive that we fail to do. See, it's easy to look at the things that we do and look at those and call them wickedness. But as we who have been called to a higher standard, as image bearers of God, we fail to do good. We fail to do good. I mean, day in and day out, we have things that God has prescribed that we see them in the Old Testament, the idea of laws. But more than anything else, let's just take the positive command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And we fail. We fail horribly. And as we look at that command, we say, as the fool does, there is no God. Therefore, I will love myself with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my might. That it's certainly only about me, about my comfort, about my pleasure, and my renown. It's about my kingdom. And so we have failed to do good continually. Not a single thing that we do before the point of salvation do we do to any glory toward the Father. He alone deserves it, and we rob Him of it day in and day out. quote by A.W. Pink, one of my favorite authors, says this, "...the sinner is unquestionably guilty. It is not merely that he has infirmities or that he is not as good as he ought to be. He has set at naught God's authority, violated his commandments, trodden his law underfoot. And this is true not only of a certain class of offenders, but all the world is guilty before him. I come from a family where my father and my grandfather both are attorneys." And so I, like, I can't help but think of things in a courtroom setting. And as I look at this case, can you imagine this being pled in God's courtroom? That we have set at naught God's authority, violated His commandments, trodden His law underfoot. What would any just judge do? I mean, we would find it fault and have a judge that would pardon this sinner disbarred on the spot. We would remove him from the bench because he was unworthy to be there. And so we have a major issue then at play. But before we get to the solution to this issue, let's ask the question, what does this indeed do to the sinner? What does this bring about in the sinner's life? So notice verse 5. The sinner lives in terror of God's justice. Notice this. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. The idea that the sinner who has rebelled against God, even though he may proclaim with his heart, there is no God, still lives with this idea that there is a God that he will indeed be accountable to. Friends, it is built within man. We understand, whether we proclaim it or not, that there is one to whom we will give account. And it brings fear and trembling. One of the ways that I like to consider having a conversation with an atheist, because the Lord has given me ample opportunities for that, The atheist and the agnostic, I've had rather interesting conversations with, but I consider the way that they argue, and they argue in a way that is passionate. I mean, they they argue from a place of fire. And I'm fully convinced the reason they do is because for them to ever go back on their phrase, there is no God, they must come to the real conclusion that there is a God who is full of wrath and justice that they have spurned time and time and time again. They fight passionately from a place of fear. When I consider having a conversation with that those individuals, it's interesting to watch them waver. It's interesting to see when a well-laid argument is placed before him them they just tremble. And how do we also, even in the midst of difficult situations when we sin, almost instantly you see that that fear, and then prayerfully there is at least, that there is a fear of God that we should indeed have. And, and, and what's interesting, if you want to see a really clear illustration of this, when you're driving down the road and a police officer comes by, you're not speeding, but you're still hitting the brakes a little bit, you know what I mean? there's still that terror. Even though there's no reason to punish you, you're being just. You're being a just citizen. You're not speeding. And so what God's saying here is He's inspiring David to write is they're looking around. There's not a single thing that should terrorize them, but still they live their life in this state of terror and fear. And friends, the unjustified sinner has to live this way because at any moment their life may end and they might stand before a just and holy God free from any pardon of sin and have to give an account what a terrifying way to live terrifying way to live because they've trodden underfoot the laws of God. They've looked at his authority and spurned it, and they violated each and every one of his commands. And so here, just before we go any further, uh, what are we to do? I mean, does this case not seem a bit hopeless? I mean, when you consider the wickedness of the human heart, who we are, and friends, I'm not giving an illustration because you know your heart. The same way I know mine, I need not a single soul to convince me of how wicked I am. I need to only do a bit of introspection. And as I do that, I find myself completely at fault. I find that I have indeed uh, spurned God's authority, that I've violated His commands, that I've looked at His law and said, I've got a better way. I don't need anyone to convince me of that. If I were to walk into a courtroom, I would have to instantly plead guilty. So what then? Are we to do? And as David writes this, and remember this is an idea of contemplation, he's he's asking his people to consider this. Why would he ask his people to consider this? Because for us to understand who we are sheds great understanding and grace and great light on how merciful and gracious of a God we serve. Notice this as David's wrapping up this psalm. He argues this. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against him. You put them to shame for God has rejected them. And David makes this plea. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Isn't it interesting that as David is penning this letter, penning this psalm, he's considering the wickedness of man, and yet still he has the, the courage to say, oh, that salvation may come of Zion. He's ultimately asking the Lord to arrive, to do something. And really what you have, even in contrast to what we see in First Peter, that we need to be very careful, those of us who call, uh, call God father, because he does indeed judge impartially. But David has absolute confidence in saying, oh, that salvation from Israel, for Israel would come out of Zion because David, we forget at times, is a prophet. David is not ignorant to what would come. You see it later, you see in 1 Peter 1 that the prophet searched and inquired carefully, longing to see the Savior, the one who would suffer and ultimately redeem man. And so as we look at this fallen state and David has the courage to pray, Lord, would salvation come from Zion? He's not arguing or praying from a place of ignorance, but instead he's, he's pleading from an understanding that there is one who would come that's able to rescue and redeem. But the most beautiful part of all of this is that the God who we have spurned day in and day out has a desire to save. Why? With who we are, why, why, why would you rescue one who looks at your authority and says away with it? Who would argue day in and day out? There is absolutely no God. And if we don't argue it with our mouths, we argue it with our hearts and our lives. And yet He is one who is quick to come and rescue. And the reason that He does this is sheerly, surely from His grace. We forget what grace is because we refuse to ever examine our own hearts. We forget the depths of it because we forget the depths of our sinfulness. We forget how truly unworthy we are, that that God looks at us ruined sinners and said, I want that one to be my bride. I want that one to be the one that represents me in the world. I want that one to be the one that goes out and makes my name famous. I want that one to be the one that I restore that image in. And he does that sheerly because he says, I'm going to do a great work in all the world, and I'm going to pick for myself the most hodgepodge group of people and I'm going to use them for my glory and my glory alone so that no one ever can say that they did it. Because ultimately salvation is more about God's glory than it is about us. And we must come to that conclusion. Otherwise, we do not live out our salvation in a manner that is worthy of the call that we have been called to. How sweet is it that we who would argue there is no God, that we who spurned His commands might be the one who, as a redeemed people, how passionately can we go out and proclaim the good news that we have been granted. As those who have been transferred out of darkness into His marvelous light, why? Why have we done that? That we might proclaim His excellencies. And friends, if we refuse to look at who we are, we will barely scratch the surface of the depths of His excellencies. And this idea that salvation would come from Zion is a recognition that we are completely incapable and unable to restore ourselves. David, as, as we see him be called a man after God's own heart, as we see him do great and mighty things, and even as we see that grand fall that he has, David, in all of his might and all of his power, recognized that he himself was incapable. But you know the beautiful thing that I find to be just the most comforting? That when I stand in that courtroom and I plead myself guilty, instead the gavel drops and he screams justified. No, not guilty and not just not guilty because this is the truths of the gospel that I think we often forget that the gospel is not just god looking at you and saying that hey you're, you you ha- there's no reason to punish you no that's that's half of it he doesn't just look at you and say, Hey, you're pardoned from all of the times that you've screamed, There is no God. You're pardoned from all the ways that you've taken the good and blessed things that I've given you and twisted them and made them wicked. That you, as, 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 a, as an individual who bore my image, went out and with a corrupted heart and mind, misrepresented my glory. He doesn't look at you and say, Hey, you're pardoned from that. I've swept it under the rug. No, instead, He justifies you as an individual. He does not simply deal with your sin and say, Hey, there's no reason to punish you any longer. Instead, he takes it nails it to the cross and cancels the record of your debt, cancels it as if it were never, ever there. And far past that, he grants you every single obedient thing that Christ has done and credits it to your account. That he doesn't look at you, the one who cried, there is no God, but the one who says, not my will, but yours be done. That's the gavel that falls in that grand courtroom. In the midst of us standing there, that we are naked and exposed before him, that there is absolutely no righteous thing that we have ever done. And he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Not based on our merit. Not an ounce of it based on our merit. And praise God that not an ounce of it is based on our merit. But instead he he looks and he sees his son. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. It covers us. And from the moment that you have been saved, the moment that you pleaded with Christ to rescue and redeem you, He does not see you as the one who cries, there is no God. But instead, He sees you as a beloved heir. He sees you as perfect, flawless, without stain, wrinkle, or any such thing. He sees you as His beautiful, flawless, perfect bride. And in light of our fallen state, we must ask, why? And the answer always flows back to this, sheer grace. And so, my friends, my prayer is that as we consider this idea of who we are apart from Christ, that we may get a more clear and thrilling view of who Christ is. Because far too often, we neglect looking at ourselves. Because it's painful at times. But friends, as we realize who we are apart from Him, we can realize the true magnitude of His beauty. We can realize the true splendor of our groom. And we, although a corrupt bride, He will make perfect. He will indeed make perfect.